Welcome to our Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut. I'm Daniel Pais. And today we have a very special two-part episode. We are talking with Russ Hudson, um, Enneagram pioneer, author, teacher extraordinaire, a very good friend of ours and someone who we respect and admire a lot. Um, we're in conversation with Russ today. Um, and so we hope you enjoy um, this, uh, this, this conversation about the Enneagram and, and, and what it's for, what it's about. So, hey, hey, my friend, how are you? Thanks, Urania. Thanks, B. I'm, I'm very well. Happy to be here with you. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you're home in New York, huh? That is right. I'm in my very living Okay, room. and B and I are together this time here in San Francisco. So glad to be talking with you. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this for a long time and we've when we've when we've crossed paths, we've often said we wanted to have a conversation or two or three. Um so thank you so much for being yes. here with us and in conversation. And of course the hardest thing is to is to define a focus because we always feel like talking about so many important things. Everything, really. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Enneagram is, as as Gurdjieff said, a symbol of all and everything. So, uh, so it's hard to narrow it down. But we thought we'd, you know, focus in this first hour on, you know, what is this Enneagram thing for? Because I think one of the things that you and I and Uranio really hold in common is a deep commitment to using the Enneagram for what we believe it was intended for and, and doing what we might describe as high quality uh, Enneagram work. So we wanted to talk about what, what, that's, what that means to us and um, you know, tips for listeners in terms, if they're interested in the Enneagram, how to use it in the best possible ways. Um, and also just what's on our minds right now, what, what we've been doing, what we're finding interesting um, in, in teaching and working with the Enneagram. Yeah, and although the, the question may sound obvious, in practice, what we see is that not many people understand what we'll probably talk about. But maybe you would like to, to start, dear Russ. What is this for? What is the Enneagram for? Well... Obviously, in this time, in this era, people are using it for a lot of things, uh, many different applications. And applications are good, but I always used to use the metaphor that a good engineer knows science, knows physics, knows physics, right? And first things first. Um, I think applications work better if you have at least the spirit of what it's for. we can debate about the jargon that we use or don't use, but the intention and certain orientations become very important in my view. So I, as you know, I learned about the Enneagram originally through the Gurdjieff work. I learned it from people who lived with Gurdjieff um, and we didn't really use the typology as such. There were related ideas, but we didn't have the nine points around the Ingram symbol as part of that work. Nonetheless, after I'd been doing that kind of inner work for many years, when I encountered Ichazo's Enneagram and this typology, I could instantly see why it had been developed, the utility of it, and how it could be helpful. And that view hasn't changed very much. For me, Uh, To put it very simply, the Enneagram does not tell us who we are. It tells us what we've taken ourselves to be. It has clues about our deeper nature, to be sure. But even that is not exactly saying what we are. You know, we should not confuse a talent or a capacity for our identity. But I would say that originally, in my understanding, the typology was there to help us Uh, in the journey to learning to be more present. And as I'm sure we would be teaching our students and and anyone we work with, it's we learn about presence through learning about the centers. The centers become a 
a way of understanding what presence actually is beyond just a nice concept. Um, so for me, it was a study of what were some of the barriers and challenges to living a life of presence. Everyone agrees that you know, being present is probably a good idea. We all like to be here now, but actually doing it is another matter, yeah. especially in the midst of life. And for me, the Enneagram was really also in this sense of what Gurdjieff called the fourth way, the way in life. It's a way of remembering presence in the middle of relationships, work, dealing with the kids, stuff like that, um, without benefit of a monastery. <laughs> so, yeah. so how do you do that? Well, the Enneagram, for me, was meant to be a tool to help us with that aim, that way of learning to bring more and more presence into our lived life. Right. So that sounds like what we say that it's a map to raise levels of awareness, raise to higher levels of awareness. And, uh, you know, some people that think this is just a horizontal model talking about nine personalities, I think the three of us can agree that we truly don't, don't see that as the Enneagram work. And yeah. it's not overcoming, you know, type, but it's about going beyond personality within our types and uh, that is achieved by presence which is by the way a concept that evolves with the levels of awareness like being present to what right and what? not only to the body and so but um yeah so i i also russ have this experience not as long as yours on, on the fourth way school and also in sufism and uh I, I really think it's important um, to to talk inner work before even we talk Enneagram, right? And, and then understand the inner work informed by the Enneagram. So it sounds like it's, um, we are in common ground when we say that it's a self-development system, not as just knowing personality. And it combines psychology and spirituality, right? Yes, all of the above. Uh, very much my view. Uh, and to keep our sights on the fact that, as you were just saying, Oranio, it is a developmental tool. It's a developmental model. Um, you know, without even uh, getting into the deeper spirituality, sometimes when I was asked to speak in organizations, I would sometimes teach the level Don Riso's levels of development to open up a conversation about where do we want to go with this? Now, when we look at the types, they become a way of customizing what will be most helpful for our development to make it more personal. It's not one size fits all. That's the big message. There are things that apply to all of us, but there are also differences and in our soul journey and I think that's one of the ways I find it super helpful. Mm -hmm. I also agree that the, the, what it's, the target kind of changes as you go. That's another part of it that's not obvious. Uh, we learned that the lines of development are not a straight line. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that's an, yet another important thing to bear in mind because we, uh, uh, if we think of development as a linear Cartesian thing, we'll end up simplifying too much what yeah. the path is. Right. Yes. Right. And I think I, I, I like what you say, and I know that you sometimes when I've heard you give talks, I, I know that sometimes you even open with, you know, the Enneagram teaches us about what we are not. Um, but what we mistakenly identify at, with um, and think we are, even though that isn't what we are. <laughs> yeah. It's not what we are ultimately, but it's in taking ourselves to be that for all intents and purposes, it's what we bring to the world until further notice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Skip over that. <laughs> yeah, it's archetypal. And uh, we need at the same time to understand like uh, we are in here, but we are not from here. And, uh, and I like when you say, Russ, that uh, even the higher aspects and, you know, potentially even 
the virtue and the holy ideas are not the end. They, you know, they are like, like gateways back to, to essence. Um, and uh, then realizing maybe, you know, a better approximation would be realizing we are all love. But we, if we, um, if we don't understand that we are, all, are on a way back, then we don't really get the Enneagram. Right. That's right. Yeah. One way I've, I've spoken about that is to regard the symbol and the circle being, you know, the most defining feature of the symbol. And sometimes people, as you know, suggest we, why do we even have this spooky symbol that's <laughs> and scary? And I said, well, for a lot of reasons, but if we understand the symbolism of that figure, it, it, I, I teach my students that the circle means that the Enneagram is aimed to the ground of unity. Mm. You call that whatever you like, call it God, call it Allah, call it love, call it consciousness. And it's really all the above. But that the Enneagram that is really the Enneagram is a guide to the realization of that. And if it's not really helping us with that, you have something interesting maybe, but it's not really the Enneagram. It's certainly not the soul of the Enneagram. Right. So talking about how we work uh, with that right now in our specific um, practices, um, how, what is in your mind right now, Raz, and what have you been doing, perhaps even a bit differently from the past, uh, in your ever-present intention to honor this? Thing. It's very interesting, Aranya. I'm, I'm kind of going in two directions, kind of at the same time. One of them is to be more knowledgeable and explicit about the ways in which this teaching, this current, if you will, this transmission, wove its way through the history of the spiritual traditions of the world and our philosophical frameworks. And really know how to look you'll see it like be those wonderful trips you take people on to to florence and dante was learned this from somewhere mm. and but you know egypt and yes. and or Jude, judaic mysticism kabbalah sufism as you mentioned Aranio, that it really is there kind of baked into the cake of yes. the western tradition and has a lot to say about the eastern traditions too so I think in that sense, the Enneagram can be a help to the reigniting of the mystical sense of the West, which has been so covered over. Uh, we've lost a lot of the esoteric heart of the Western tradition. So I'm trying to sort of gently help people feel into there was there's this tremendous wisdom tradition that is untapped for the vast majority of human beings. And I would like to, more people to know about that. On the other hand, I also know that as soon as I start using certain kind of spiritual jargon, I scare away a lot of people who otherwise would <laughs> be very interested. So I'm forever trying to find ways to talk about it in simple human terms without reducing it to something that it's not. To continue the invitational sense of it but to maybe speak of it outside of the jargon or perhaps to explain the jargon in ways that people who aren't necessarily identified with any religious or spiritual tradition can relate to and go, oh yeah, I do know what that means. I've experienced that. That resonates for me. So it's on the one, and, and both of those are by way of trying to bring another sensibility back into the conversation, I suppose. Right. So it sounds like, you approach the Enneagram to something that has always existed and that we discover rather than invent and, uh, and then elicit it in, in, in ways that uh, will continue a very uh, old work, uh, but also communicating it in ways that fit the current uh, moment in history. Exactly. You know, I take people to Egypt every year and I'm constantly saying to them, 
You know, we're not going to become ancient Egyptians, and we cannot, even if we would like to. Mm -hmm. right. uh, we can't even become people from before the First World War. You know, we, right. The global consciousness keeps changing, but there are lessons, there are wisdom teachings, there are helpful tools we can find throughout history that may have been dropped along the way, but uh, that could be very helpful for where we are right now. I think and this journey with Russ in Egypt we, is one that we highly recommend. Check out if you are interested in the deep dive with Russ when traveling through Egypt for what, three weeks, right, Russ? Three weeks. I, and I've yeah. been dying to go on that trip with you, Russ. And every year it's a, a matter of scheduling and I haven't been able to make it yet. But um, I love it when you talk about Egypt and the ancient wisdom and the way you kind of tell the real story, you know, that you may not hear from some mainstream sources. And um, B, you've, you've been doing a big study on history of the Enneagram. Yes, I think that yes. Russ saw a little bit of it in, yeah. a, in a conference in Egypt. Yeah. So. And I love everything you just said. I think that's exactly, I think we share, uh, I think, a passion for that, that, that endeavor to try to bring sort of these lessons from ancient wisdom that I think the Enneagram um, is a symbolic representation of, um, but that's sort of complicated. But I think some of these core lessons that, that we find in these ancient wisdom teachings and helping make them practical for people today and, and help them understand um, how they can apply them in their daily lives, even though, like you say, we're, we're in a whole different era. Um, what, what do you think, what's an example of a couple of, you know, lessons from ancient wisdom that, you know, sort of connected to the Enneagram, maybe explicitly or implicitly that, that you find um, meaningful or helpful for people? And, and how do you kind of put that into language people can understand? I don't know why, but just I, I trust when, you know, various light bulbs pop in some kind of, uh, I think that if we look at the Enneagram, the, the, the central triangle, you know, the, the nine, three, six, six, three, six, nine, as you think of it, I think of it nine, three, six, back to nine, but uh, that the ancient world understood that at the heart of everything was a unity and that's kind of the realization of point nine mm -hmm. you know that it's the shock it's the oh <laughs> i'm i'm not what i thought i was i'm something else and uh that the ancient egyptians for example were not polytheists they understood that there was a ground of consciousness a source of everything and that source took a certain particularity this idea is carried on in kabbalah in jewish mysticism uh, but they saw the so-called gods or as divine principles that were kind of like we would think of essential qualities. Mm -hmm. the, uh, they're the alphabet through which the source weaves and creates the perceivable universe, inner and outer. Uh, so then the three point becomes the realization that I am both that source, I am that consciousness, but I'm also a human being here in the world. And I'm here to do stuff. And I have a role to play. I have a dharma. I have some purpose for my existence. So a certain way three is about finding that purpose. But it's also about the paradox of being both a person in the world and something beyond. To be mm -hmm. in the world but not of it, as you just said, Urania. And then I think of six is that the circuit completes when the I becomes we. And we start to realize that we're here collectively to fulfill certain functions on the planet. Um, and all of the great religious traditions address that one way or another. This is the Ummah in, uh, in Islam. This is the body of Christ in Christianity. It is the tribe of Israel in, in Judaism. But this idea that we're here collectively to be part of some transmission, some radiance of creation mm -hmm. in the physical world, that we're meant to be part of that 
individually and collectively and then that's doing then that feeds back to the unity and on and on we go but it's um it, in that sense it becomes an ongoing spiral or cycle it's not just a, a closed circuit it keeps evolving and that that's the thing that i think very part of the enneagram spirituality that is western is that there isn't a static uh punchline <laughs> it's not like oh you found consciousness you're done no your work has just begun actually yeah. now it gets interesting um so this idea of an ongoing revelation, an ongoing um, manifestation of the potentiality of the universe through us, I think is the interesting part. Now, I don't talk about that with just anybody. <laughs> uh, thanks for talking about it with us, yeah. For years, I've been saying that the internet really needs some quality Enneagram content that's free and accessible to everyone, but that's also deep and comprehensive and growth-oriented. So I have developed the ultimate guide to each of the nine types based on work that Uranio and I have done together over the years. Each type has in-depth information about the types, including all kinds of details about the nine types. They include key traits of the types, their focus of attention, thoughts and emotions, behavior patterns, and information about blind spots, all kinds of stuff. And as usual, we always have stuff about the growth paths and the subtypes. We hope you'll check them out. Head to cpenneagram.com backslash guides to download them. I mean, I think some of these ancient spiritual traditions, what they really aim at is like, what is the purpose of human life here? You know, right. and like um, when you were talking, I thought of your friend Cynthia Bourgeau, who mm -hmm. I'm a fan of her work, um, and she's written many books. And uh, in one of her books, she talks about the human alchemy yes. uh, and sort of when we do inner work, um, when we use the sort of lower self or personality as a vehicle for learning about ourselves and disidentifying from that in order to um, transcend, in order to come to a higher state of consciousness, that has an impact on the collective and on the whole human project. You know, that there's a, as she, as she says in one of her books, we're the midwives of spirit. Um, when we do inner work, that's, meaningful in this deeper sense uh for the cosmos but and certainly for us and the enneagram is a is a guide a map uh, a tool for doing that it's a great baby rattle too <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that you know many human beings that i encounter have these kind of big questions but they've been taught to put them to sleep throw them in the back of their mind they're there they were things they maybe felt intensely when they were younger, but now, eh, you know, I'm just going through my life doing what I got to do. And who's got time for that? Or they have been taught to contextualize that uh, question into whatever are the, uh, you know, limits of that given society. What is yeah. acceptable? So I think you can talk about this, but not that. Yeah. So it's like, it sounds like to do inner work, we need at a certain point to rebel against a few assumptions rebel. and rebel yeah, against a few assumptions and uh, expectations from what's around us. Yes. Yes. Because it, I think the Enneagram does it in a wonderfully sneaky way <laughs> because most people want to know about themselves. They want their, you know, we have this narcissistic drive sitting on top of all of it. Tell me about me. Tell me about me. And, while you're at it, tell me about my partner or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, or tell me about my kids. Or now I finally get my mom. And it's all very well. But then my concern, and this is where I think where we get together, is that people just never go past that. And they just accumulate more and more and more details about their personality, or at least what they think their personality is. And they never go past it the, the, to the reconnecting with those bigger questions and seeing that what I'm thinking I am is just such a small part of what my consciousness actually is. 
Yeah, yeah, totally agree. But I guess my point, Russ, is when we do what we're what you're saying right now, mm-hmm. uh, unavoidably we will need to break away from some assumptions around us. Like, yeah, I think that it's not easy to do this work without pissing off people at the Gurdjieff oh, yeah. work, for instance, or even <laughs> in the Enneagram community. The you know, the, the contemporary one and more people because we are daring to go beyond a few limits. Yes, yes, that's very true. To go into the new territory, which Gurdjieff himself certainly had no problem doing. And he probably pissed off a lot of people along the way. I will say, little by little, there's a growing number of people in the Gurdjieff community who are realizing that we're not nuts, that there are people we're doing real inner work and that the con- when you contextualize the Enneagram in the right way, it will help them in their inner work. But yes, you're, you're always going to be, if you're on that evolutionary current, it's going to take you past established dogmas wherever they may be coming from. Yeah, right. now what, what you, I, I love what you said about the triangle <laughs> and it um, made me think of Gurdjieff's ray of creation. Yes, how it um, when he talks about the levels of worlds and also, you know, the spiraling down and spiraling up, and also with all the symbolism of the circle on it. I just remembered something that is said in Sufism, especially in a few teachings of Enneagram in Sufism, uh, that point nine is a bit of um, what what is the real. I, way closer to, to who we truly are, then point six being uh, the ideal I in which we project outside uh, mm-hmm. some of the essential qualities, and then three being the illusory I, when we not only lose touch with uh, essence, but we make as if we have it, and we yes. try to be that in an imitation game. Yes, a nice description of the descent Exactly. And then also how all of that is important and what are the ascending ways, uh, you know, back to nine again. Yeah, yeah. And it's tricky, too, because the Enneagram is not simply a path of ascent. Yeah. You know, and because there is this catch that we're trying to learn how to be in the world with this realization. We're not going to sit in a cave in a in a kind of samadhi trance Right. Uh, not the aim of this work, yeah. but there is, it's how to be, that's the law of three, to hold the, the positive and the negative, the upward and the downward at the same time. How do you do that? Exactly. Thesis antithesis. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing that the downward is also part of creation itself and it's yes. therefore evolution in a way, you know. So. You know, it's, that reminds me of the first Enneagram conference we ever went to in 1994 at Stanford. Um, one of the things I remember most about that, um, that experience was seeing Richard Rohr give a talk and he gave it on the Wheel of Fortune. And it was exactly on that. Like, and he said in our culture, especially like in Western or U.S. culture, there's a lot of things that teach, that tell us about the ascent, you know, being successful and, and growing up and doing what you're supposed to be doing to be successful. Um, but he said, we don't have very many teachings about how to deal with the descent um, yes. and that the wheel of fortune has both and that the Enneagram helps us deal with the descent. Um, and it's, as you say, it's like finding, seeing yourself becoming present in everyday life and uh, being able to, both be your personality, but also do the work to get beyond it. Absolutely. You know, he and I have talked about that many times. And the way I try to paraphrase it for my students is the path of ascent is cheer up your consciousness, your spirit. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, just, just relax and take a few breaths and whoop you do. You know, you're part of the divine. It's pretty good news. Yeah. So that's the part that's easy to sell. <laughs> The path of descent is to that consciousness noticing the actual condition of the soul. Where am I really now? Yes. What suffering is undigested in me? What is in what ways am I jumping back into the old stuff again and again and again? And and I completely agree. That's where the Enneagram is fits. It's to 
bring that expanded consciousness to bear on the content that we're usually identified with. And every time we do that, something new can happen. Right, Russ, uh, about this uh, latter part that you talked yeah. about. Yeah. I think that the three of us agree very much in, in the big need we have today for spiritual realism, in which yes. we don't only uh, talk about, you know, the light we can uh, be in touch with right now and uh, that we, we get more realistic about all the hard things that we'll face on the path. Well, I think um, what I was going to say, which that's related to is I think, um, and kind of like what you were saying, when people want to be consciousness or they're doing spiritual work, sometimes there's the danger of spiritual bypass. Oh, yes. And one of the things the Enneagram helps us with in terms of the descent is something that Dante, you know, uh, dramatized in the Divine Comedy, which is, you know, at the beginning of the Inferno, Dante wakes up in a dark wood, you know, and he's been asleep. And, you know, just like Gurdjieff tells us, you know, we're, we're the problem with, with humankind is that we're, we're kind of sleep, we're asleep, we're machines, we're, we're kind of sleepwalking through life. Um, and what the whole point of the inferno is you must go down to go up. Like in the, in the first thing that happens is he sees this mountain and he wants to climb the mountain, but he's blocked. And then he has to go, he has to go through hell in order to then rise up. And I think the Enneagram helps us because it helps us see that we have to contend with our shadow and yes. part of the work of, of, of learning about our personality of self-observing how we get stuck in different things and get stuck at this lower level of awareness is the sort of the archetypal spiritual message of conscious suffering uh, right. in some ways you need to face yourself before you can rise above yourself yes it, it and that's covered a lot of times by the term integration we're not just talking about it as one of the lines. It's the whole Enneagram in some sense is not about transcendence, but about integration. Right. To metabolize the different components of the psyche. And yeah, it's interesting, Gurdjieff, that bit of Dante you were just um, conveying. You know, Gurdjieff had a, a system of, of sort of a typology called the, it, the kinds of idiot. Mm. And they, they drew that from Sufism, but they aren't a horizontal map. They're a vertical map. And there's a progression of the kind of idiot that you are. But as you get near the end, you have to go all the way back to the first one. Yeah. <laughs> of the teaching. Wow. And it's, it's like the, a labyrinth is that too. When you walk the labyrinth, you think, oh, I'm almost there. And that takes you all the way out to the, to the perimeter again. Mm, and yeah. so there's a lot of teachings about that. But basically that's, I agree that a lot of people get stuck in the, the wide popularity of, quote, non-dual teachings, end quote, <clears throat> I think is good in one sense, the, the realization of it, but in the other, it, it leads to a lot of what you're talking about. There's so much contemporary suffering that a lot of spirituality is reduced to pain management. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's like Novocaine or, you know, barbiturates, and we have, we have an epidemic of painkillers in the yes. culture right now. But I think spiritual painkillers are this kind of false transcendence. Yeah. Um, I've been at conferences for non-dual teachings, and I, I kind of am taken aback by how often they're a platform for a kind of dissociative approach to life, uh, that where people are thinking they're in the non-dual and the rest of us poor bastards are in the, in the dual, but then I have to gently suggest, well, you know, that kind of is dual. You're <laughs> <laughs> yes. in there where I hear that's too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah I, I don't get too much traction with that. <laughs> <laughs> At least not at the non-dual conference. <laughs> no, no, no. Everybody's found a good parking spot. Um, no. so, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. That's the thing about it too, is ongoing process. We talked about that. It's, it's not about a parking spot. It's not like, Ah, uh, I, I feel a little less suffering now, so I'm done. It's part of being part of the evolutionary processes of reality, really. Right, yeah. And I guess, Russ, I don't know if you feel the same. Uh, we need to be in the business of complexity. 
when working with the Enneagram because everything around us in the world today invites us to think in, in a dual way, right? So yeah. it's harder, I think, for people to embrace paradoxes and to think in a more sophisticated way. So when we talk about you know, this needing to integrate life and whatever is beyond life. Or when we talk about the Gurdjieffian Enneagram and then the typological Enneagram without making a, a rupture, you know, between the two. But then what comes to me, and I guess this is my question, is that one of the historic dualities that uh, we have seen on the Enneagram is people who work only by means of befriending the personality and other people who work only trying to confront personality as if these two things should come completely separate. Right. And I think that uh, the contemporary Enneagram movement and perhaps even more here in the US um, was based in, in a reaction to what happened in the 70s. So a lot of befriending personality was what informed the Enneagram movement. And then at a certain point, perhaps later on the path, we also need to add some components on confronting personality more firmly. But where are you on this? Yeah, just to clarify a little bit, because um, I think you alluded to something I want to make more explicit yeah. before we hear from Russ. And, and, and and that is that, you know, in the 70s, you know, I think a lot of people think the encounter movement went too far, you know, too much confrontation, too harsh. Um, and then there was sort of a swing back in the other direction in terms of being gentle and sort of um, befriending the ego, um, gentle approaches, you know, getting to know the ego, but not really confronting it. Um, and I think then there are other, um, you know, certainly I think... Um, Claudio Naranjo was a good, a good, a good proponent of, of confronting the ego, but sometimes maybe a little too much. And one of the things we talk about sometimes is that you need both, especially befriending the ego more at the beginning of the path. But I think people like you, when you were saying earlier, people kind of get stuck just describing the personality and detailing all the different characteristics and they don't go beyond that. Um, yeah. I think sometimes that that can be something that happens, but then at a certain point, we really do need to confront the ego. And I think that's what the Enneagram especially helps us do. But, uh, but what do you think? Yeah, I think you do need both. I think the tricky business is who's doing the confronting. <laughs> right. A lot of times it's an egoic bully attacking yes. another part that's been exposed and you can play that game until you drop dead. And, even in holy paths, and a lot of Sufis and Gurdjieffians I met, they have radically crystallized their superego and will be slaves to that until they die. Mm, That's thing. not it. Nor is, oh, honey, I just was acting out again. I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're, it's a law of three thing again. It's a paradox. Where do we stand? Where is it in me, the place that can actually be kind in a way that isn't just indulgent but actually meeting the the structures with some sort of presence and compassion if you do that for real and not it's not just some gloss it or what comes up is conscience mm. yeah. conscience is not inner critic it's suffering created by seeing what is trapping me what is enslaving me what is make reducing all my possibilities and that is ouchie and so part of my notion of confronting the ego is staying with the ouchie yeah. Yeah. don't don't yield don't cover it over don't make it nice it hurts to be so much less than we are the other thing is and i think this is more what you're talking about it becomes when we have developed some capacity to see the patterns objectively there are times where we must not act out we must not indulge where we have to not refrain from certain behaviors and impulses. Here's that impulse. I want to tell that person off, take a breath. I'm not going to do it. And in, so in that sense, confronting the ego is, is not giving it my life force and energy by just saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I have to do it in my work sometimes with just trains of thought. 
Right. I'll give a, a sort of practical example. You know, I was I have a brain that tilts toward depression. So when I'm not doing well, I can get depressed and even very depressed. Not so much anymore, but the healthy part of that came from confronting it, not making myself bad for having depression. Like I, I picked it, I chose it. No. But to see that if I indulge certain thoughts and behaviors, it worsens it. I get more stuck. I get more wrapped up in it. And then I'm really in trouble. So there's a confronting it in the sense like, I don't want to go out. I want to just lay on the couch here and five out and I'll just watch a movie or read a book. And I cannot do that. Mm-hmm. I must not do that. I have to get up. I have to shake it off. I have to go outside. I have to talk to people. I have to engage life, which is the last thing my personality feels like doing in that moment. But if I can break it, then I don't slide off into that depression. So those are some ways I I understand confronting the ego that I have found helpful. There's probably others. (laughs) Introducing our new CP Online platform. It has everything you love about CP Online, but with extra benefits, including a social community and easy navigation to find the content you are looking for. Every year, all paying CP Online members will get exclusive access to 16 live online sessions, including 12 monthly webinars and four quarterly Q&As. You will join a community of seekers who value deep inner work using the wisdom of the Enneagram taught by B and Uranio. As a bonus, you'll have access to over 100 hours of content in our library. Engage in meaningful discussions, send direct messages, and participate in private group conversations, the perfect place to share your thoughts and insights. Want to see what the new platform is like? Give it a try by signing up for a free trial. Go to learn.cpenagram.com. The annual membership is the best value, and we have a seven-day free trial. We will phase out our previous platform soon, so don't delay in signing up. Well, a personal thank you from me as a fellow five, first of all. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's also a very similar path for me. Now, I think, Russ, that uh, we teach what you are talking about in our case through in, in a few ways, like uh, trying to, um, you know, tell the difference between guilt and repentance, guilt coming from ego and repentance from essence. You know, using concepts like one of the essence qualities called severity, which is done by essence, like the Sufis actually call when they are not doing the thing that you said, that it's not so good. When they are doing the good thing, they, they talk about essence accusations and more. So it's, it's another higher level uh, structure that looks at personality and says, now you obey me, right? And yet, I think uh, what Russ said is super important because a lot of uh, what I've been thinking about lately is a lot of the work is about discernment. Like, okay, is that is is this coming from sort of a higher part of me that really can, is confronting the ego with compassion right now and recognizing I need to not just go with my impulses. I need to do something different and harder. Um, or is that my out of control super ego? That's just another part of my ego just being harsh on me. Yeah, um, and I, and I, um, I remember a, a teacher I had Russ that said <laughs> that what what tells the difference between being on a, a path or not is being able to tell the difference of what's coming from above or below, or in Gurdjieffian language, what's influence A coming from below as opposed to influence C or even B a little bit coming from above. And, uh, and then the other thing being uh, the most important organ uh, for doing inner work is not the heart, but the nose to, <laughs> to learn how to smell things, <laughs> you know, if they are like flowers or something not good. Right. Yes. Yes. That's a, that discernment again. I, there's other ways. I think this just comes from the experience of doing inner work. I notice, for example, when it's inner critic, it has it creates distance, separation, boundaries. I'm not like that. That's not essence. <laughs> yes. But essence can be fierce. Essence can be intense. 
but it has a heat to it. It is a heat that melts. It has a meat that a heat that can actually reconnect. Sometimes we're acting out because we're not in touch with the source of our discontent. And it might show me if you keep doing that, you're never going to be whole again. But if you if you don't do that behavior and you say no, what's underneath it will come up and say, Hello, I'm some old suffering that you never noticed before. So nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love what you said earlier, um, and I've never heard you say that before, but I love it. I love the language of staying with the ouchie. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Technical lingo. I, I got that from, from, you know, that's probably from Plotinus. I don't know. <laughs> but also, you know, the realization <laughs> that to do inner work, it's important uh, to have strength. Even yes. more than something like goodness. Goodness is more a result of doing inner work, mm. while strength is the given to be able yeah. to do this very hard thing. Yeah, will, strength, these are important elements. They show up in certain ways through the Sufi Lataif. You know, yes. there. Yes. Those are things we need, beginning, middle, and end. But they get more natural, I think, as we, we learn to work with them and as we've been on on the path of our inner work for a while. So do you think the world and at least, you know, students, we very gladly meet in our ways, uh, in our way are ready for spiritual realism? Some are. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, you know, I'm friends with A.H. Uh, Almas, Hamid Ali. He's been yes. my teacher for years. Now we're friends. Very much. Uh, He's always saying we, we can have a little too much optimism about the timetable. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. He says, I know many of you think we're going to have a new age in a few years. He said, you should think more like centuries or millennia. <laughs> <laughs> Not around the corner. And he said, bear in mind, he says two things. One is, if you look throughout history, Rarely has there ever been a time where a lot, a lot, a lot of people in the world were plugged in. There were certain periods in the very ancient world, as example, some periods in Egypt, some periods probably in ancient India or China and so forth, where there were more people who had an ongoing understanding. But in general, it's always been a pretty small percentage of people who are not just in it for feeling a little better. Mm -hmm. but for participating in the work with the capital W. Mm -hmm. Right. I know you know what I mean by that. So there's, there's, um, but the other thing that he and I talked about, and I've, I've seen references elsewhere, and Gurdjieff talks about this, that maybe it's not the destiny of a lot of people to, to be doing the inner work. Like it's a particular function on the consciousness of the earth that some human... He said, most of humanity is here for the reciprocal maintenance of great nature. There's a great expression, right? Yes, I love it. Most of us are just here to keep the world going and healthy. But he said, a small percentage are needed to be the the connection between this world and the higher worlds or the deeper worlds, if you will. And he said, so they, they've got different functions and it's okay. Uh, that I don't know if that's true, but I like the idea because it helps me be less crazy <laughs> when people say, don't you get this? And they really don't. Not only do they not, they don't want to. And then I think, who am I to impose this on them? Right. It's not elegant to do that. Yeah. Maybe not wise I, at all. I know. I it, it, it created much less stress in my life when I, when I realized that it's really much wiser not to judge people who don't want to be on the path. Uh, yeah. to higher understanding because everybody gets to choose. And um, I like what you said about some people are, are here to kind of keep the world going, hopefully in a healthy way. And I guess as long as we don't have too many people who are at sort of too much stuck in ego so that they create too many problems <laughs> so that we don't go down as a yeah. collective, but that we're either staying where we are or gradually uh, going higher, even if the timetable is longer than we might like. Yeah, I think. Well, I think when I think of that wonderful Gurdjieffian expression, the reciprocal maintenance of great nature, I think of that of humanity towards nature, kind of like what is talked about the mission of Adam and Eve in the, in Genesis. 
but I think it also, we are part of great nature. Humans, beings are part of it. So it's maintaining our way of being in the world that is not disintegrating, that not falling. The one principle of inner, inner work that I think applies even to people who aren't interested in the deeper dive is that there is no free lunch in the universe. There, you go up or you go down. There is no stasis. Yes. So if you're not doing some kind of healthy work, and if the person just meditating a little bit, health healthier, working on their relationships, they don't have to be the whole thing, but they're helping at least in their world to swim so that they're not descending. Right. So for a lot of people, I've learned that's all they want, you know. And it, but then a few of the people that we get lucky to work with, they're like us, and they wanna. They want to take this other rocket ship. <laughs> they want to be on this other journey. Yeah. Do you? I, I sometimes hear things lately, and this goes a little bit to Almas's timetable. Um, I've heard, but what do you think? Um, that that at this moment in history, it is a time when they're when we're being helped a little bit more than typical, yes. um, because maybe we need it, you know, to to keep the planet healthy or things like that. That that there are people, more people are kind of catching on or getting inspired or, um, you know, growing spiritually without as much effort as is sometimes necessary, even though, of course, it also takes a lot of effort at all times. Yeah. And if I may, before you say something about that, Russ, I had a fourth way teacher, Gurdjieffian teacher, who said that right now, the results that we get by doing a little bit of inner work are way bigger because of how much harder it is to start and to engage with the thing. Yes. Yes, that's my experience too. And um, they used to say in the work that the metaphor I've used for my students is that it's like when everyone in your environment is going crazy, like the angels are hovering around looking for someone to work with. And there's one person who's staying centered, who's staying awake, who's staying aware. And while everyone else is going crazy, all the grace of those angels is going to go to that person who's uh. being awake in the midst of all the craziness. So yes, that when we are working in crisis, it's actually easier to, to make progress. Uh, Madame uh, de Salzman, who was one of my mentors, talked about that uh, when she and... Um, her fellow students were with Gurdjieff leaving Russia during the revolution. Wow. Yes. Can you imagine? Mm. Wow. Uh, they said it was, she said that sometimes the, the presence around the group was so intense. You could just about see it, that there was this feeling of this grace flowing to them because they were doing their best to keep awake in the midst of a time of great chaos. Yeah. And I've always found interesting that Gurdjieff worked during revolution also around world war one and two you know with adversity perhaps even helping the work that he proposed right yes you know he worked with those ladies in uh, in paris during world war ii uh, he called them the rope and he, he was in paris during the occupation but he continued working with a group of women primarily to keep the energy of the work going so that when it was over, when, when the war was over, those women knew some things that the other people didn't have. And he put women in charge of the work when, when he was getting ready to leave the planet, including my, my mentor, Madame de Salzman, Madame de Hartman. There were several women that he entrusted. Well, he had done that even in the 19th century, towards the end of it, when he was a pilgrim in his sap group, right? He had already women, you know, seekers, against all odds. Seekers after truth. Yeah, yeah. yeah and women and men. Traveled all around. Right. That was really something for the time. Yeah, I was, many years ago, the, it, we were at a gathering and I was shown a, a very amateur painting, but done in Turkey. And it was a painting of the seekers after truth. Ah. Wow. It was the only one known in the world and they had it it is and and it was interesting you could sort of guess which one of them was Gurdjieff but yes there were several women in that group and I always tell my students you know we can we complain oh my god there's not air conditioning oh my god the meeting's going to be nine o'clock I'm not going to get oh oh my god I don't love the food here 
Yeah, these people, you know, these women were doing this at great risk, risk to their entire future. Yeah, and with no, not even trains or automobiles. No trains, no cars, no planes. No, they were just schlepping across the desert and, you know, uh, getting shot at and just doing crazy stuff. But it, it just shows that <clears throat> I don't say that to shame people, but I say that to say that the the intensity of the wish in your heart has to be powerful enough. And this is where confronting the ego comes in. It has to be powerful enough to push through all the parts of us that just want everything easy peasy. Mm -hmm. Now, Russ, um, back to something um, about our approaches working with the Enneagram. I think I think all three of us um, make sure we concentrate on fewer challenges uh, and don't get distracted with, um, you know, some curiosity, too much curiosity around the types. And one of the things I believe all three of us concentrate in uh, is what we call the passion of type. Yeah. I think that it's always dangerous to go too much uh, far away from it in other descriptions and it's not always easy to you know have the student sticking to that difficult task of spotting the passion and working on it and trying to transcend it to an extent is this your experience also yes i found that uh, the core of the transformational work is the transformation of the passion and uh, but I also teach my students that it sits a few layers deeper than most of us have been trained to look I said don't feel bad about that it's not your fault you weren't trained to look at this part of yourself and and we have various defenses against really feeling it you you I'm sure you both are aware that one of the things I did with this was to take the passions which at first can sometimes just be taught as a bad habit, but they're actually, in my view, the, the core suffering in the heart. Yes. yes. Created by the disconnect from our real purpose, our divine origin, however you wish to think of it. But <clears throat> that the, um, it, the suffering is what's driving the personality stuff. And little, step by step, you learn to be able, and this is conscience again, is being able to stay present with the suffering, conscious suffering. Conscious suffering. back into these habitual behaviors that are used to numb it. Um, so, and I've tried to be, find different language, different ways of talking about it to create a stronger invitation so that people recognize that they have tasted this. They do know something of what it is and that they have the capacities to address it. One way I talk about it is I said, your essence is not there as some sort of bonus prize for what a wonderful person you've been. <laughs> this is not it. Essence is what gives us the capacity to make that dive into our passion and to hold it to, and to, and then to say no, to, to go back to what you were talking about, to the habits by which we, really abandon ourselves, but in, in the effort to cover over the effect of the passion. And that's, that's a lot of how I see it, but yeah, that's the core of most of what I teach now and how, how one goes about that, how the, yeah. same here. We, um, we, at the same time that we teach, you know, acceptance, self-acceptance and being gentle, especially in the beginning, when we look yeah. at all of that, we also don't like to call it a habit in any, any, you know, or any language close to this. And we talk about suffering. And then what we try to do is to teach people how to separate themselves from the passion and to start calling it a, a knit and not me, you know, and then engage in what we call the suffering with the suffering like getting to levels of frustration at the passion and not at self and you know going through stages like disappointment and then tiredness and then you know repentance 
up to higher levels with disgust, horror, but yeah, we mainly work with the first stages. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the dance with the passion is the whole thing. That's the alchemy. It is the lead. It is the alchemical lead, you know, that is being transformed into gold. But you know how you do that. That's that's the whole thing of spiritual method. And there, are, it turns out there are a variety of of techniques or methods or practices but they all boil down to a growing capacity to be present with the passion and refraining from habits that function as off ramps <laughs> right. we get out of that we get out of the alchemical fire right where it's just acting it out or it's just driving our our behavior instead of us uh, i like the way you say that kind of witnessing it with presence seeing it in action and then eventually if we have the the strength to even kind of work against it uh, making it more conscious all the time since it tends to operate so unconsciously but one of the things that you know i remember thinking you know this passion thing is so central and it's so it's kind of unique to the enneagram but then um one of the things that's helped me understand it even at a deeper level is dante's purgatory is all about the passion and the virtue um, yes. The whole, the whole, third, you know, second part of his comedy is about purging the passion and aiming for the higher virtue, that vice to virtue conversion, um, which you know is you know seven hundred years later, it's still very relevant and it's totally aligned with the enneagram. Like even you know there are these seven terraces, and on each one you purge the passion and you do it collectively. Um, but then what's really interesting is um, it's it, it, it's it, it's all about all of us. Like if you, like he'll say like a certain person had to spend a hundred years on the terrace of wrath. Um, and so maybe they were a one, you know, because that was the main sin, you know? So it's interesting that there it is. Um, but we totally agree. And even the root word of the word passion means to suffer in Latin. Yes. Passion. Yeah. And it can feel like a hundred years when you're actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, just when I was working with my avarice and the, the suffering that I had to be willing to feel to work through some of it. Some of it for me was the refraining from the impulses of avarice. And part of it was I had to find a kind of spiritual antidote that became a positive force. So in my case, as I've shared many times for me with my five nature, my antidote was contact. When everything in my nature was being repulsed, rebelling, not wanting contact, I would say, I must make contact. And what that meant in each moment could be very different, but, but it was, it was a way of, you know, all, and, and again, just go back to good old Richard Rohr. <laughs> And, and uh, it's just that you get to this level of inner work. Everything is paradoxical. It's, it's always this and this, this and this. And what holds that? What can see that? What can dance with this contradiction? What Gurdjieff called, when you take out the buffers, as Gurdjieff called them, what's there? You know, what, and can we, and then we, our, our attention holding the contradictions. That's also yes. for yes. Which is... Now, Richard Rohr just contacted me a few days ago and he, and, and so evidently we're, we're talking about maybe doing a workshop. He hasn't done any in quite a while. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. This might be a good topic. I think he looks yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. That's excellent. So Russ, we could talk with you about this stuff like all day, <laughs> but I think uh, this might be a good place to stop. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this part of our discussion? Just, you know, I hope that everybody out there listening, whoever's uh, with us here, uh, just to remember, you know, all of us will have our little individual contributions and things, but there's a growing body of us. We're really getting this inner work thing and how important it is and how any real Enneagram work, it's a component of a broader system of inner work. And if you're one of those people, uh, welcome aboard <laughs> or, or happy you've been along with us and uh, just um, I, 
I think the last thing I feel moved to say is help is available when we're sincere. Yes, beautiful. And it's, um, it's so great to talk to you about this, Russ, and we so appreciate you not only for all you've contributed to the world, to understanding the Enneagram and inner work, but just for being the person you are and for being our friend. Yes. I was going to say the other thing, just a big thank you to both of you for having me and for being my essence brother and sister. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay, so I guess this was it for our first episode, but stay tuned for the second one coming soon.